mostly familiar with it. But uh, here's a question for us to consider. What is a parable, right? As we, as we approach this text, we have to think of what is this parable and what is a parable in general. Um, I have a, a good friend who's a pastor, actually like almost right across the street at Redemption Gilbert, right over here. His name's Brian Berger. And he said this to me a year or two ago in talking about parables. He said, a parable is a window that turns into a mirror. A parable is a window that turns into a mirror. And I had to text him this week and I said, Brian, was that like original, originally with you or are you quoting somebody? He goes, I think that was originally with me. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to quote you this weekend, all right? Don't freak out. But I think that's such a great, simple description of a parable. Obviously, there's a lot more that could be said about parables. But a parable in one way, it's a, it's a window that turns into a mirror. It's a, it's a window, meaning it allows us to see a perspective of God's kingdom, which this parable does. It allows us to glimpse what this kingdom is like in a way. But in God's sovereignty and in his purposes, God, in his grace, changes this window into a mirror so that the realities of his kingdom can, can come to bear on our hearts and, and lives and minds as his people. And so that's what I pray happens in our heart. A parable is meant to rightly orient us to God's world and to stir us as his people to act on what we see both in his world and in our hearts. And so we come to this parable, the parable of the sower, and we encounter it. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him, not unusual. So much so that he got into a boat sat in on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So just picture this in your mind's eye. Jesus then, he unfolds his teaching about the kingdom of God in this moment, and, and he shares this parable of the sower. He starts by saying, listen, calls their attention. He's saying, what I'm going to say is very, very important. Behold, a sower went out to, to sow. And then he describes four different types of soil, uh, as we just read, and as many of you are likely familiar Number one, in verse four, he describes the path. Now, when you think about the path, we, we might tend to think of a road, like a, a paved road, or, or even uh, during this time in the first century, maybe something with rocks on it. But actually, what he's describing is a path between fields that was worn down due to people kind of walking and traversing, not wanting to walk into the crops necessarily, but a path that was just worn down over time from, from the farmers and the people who worked the fields walking it. Then he shares about the rocky ground in verses 5 and 6. And some of us, when, when we think rocky ground, we might think of gravel. Like we picture like seeds falling down into gravel. But the picture here is actually of something that looks like soil. I mean, it's soil on the top, but just under the surface, there are large rocks so that the, the soil itself is very shallow. Okay, this is what's being referred to by the rocky ground. Rocks underneath the surface of the soil. Then he says, among thorns, in verse 7, this is um, a little bit self-evident. Among thorns means a place where weeds and thistles and thorns were growing or were already uh, being ready to grow. So it may look good now, but in a few weeks, uh, the thorns and the thistles and the weeds will come out. And then he describes the good soil, or he shares about the seed being cast in the good soil, which again is pretty self-evident. Good soil produces uh, fruit, right? 30, 60, and 100-fold. 
And the sower here is pictured spreading seed in an, in an indiscriminate manner. So he's not just going over to one part of the field and putting, so, putting seed here and seed here, but he's broadcasting. Now, uh, right now in our backyard, just a little give you a window into the harp's backyard, we have like a bare patch in our grass. Like it's, it's like a 10-foot a uh, area, 10-foot uh, kind of diameter area that is just bare. And over the last few weeks, I've been broadcasting seed into that area, which means that I just take a handful of, and some of you are like, Josh, don't do it that way. You should do it this way. It's okay. This is just what I'm doing. I was doing it this way so I could illustrate the parable, actually. (laughs) But I take a clump of seed, and I just throw it, and most of the seed kind of lands where I want it to, but there's some that lands, you know, on the side where grass is already growing. There's some that lands on the, on the concrete divider between our grass and the rocks. And there's some that just goes completely off and lands in the path and is not going to produce anything, lands on concrete. But I'm broadcasting. I'm, I'm sowing this seed into my lawn. And this is this, this picture, this image that Jesus puts out of the sower taking his seed and and sowing it, broadcasting it into this field. This is the picture he paints. And then he, he finishes this, and he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is sharing with these hearers a point concerning the kingdom of God. And this is what he calls them to hear, and what I believe the Spirit uh, calls us right now to hear as well as his people and as a church. There's a, there's a very sobering reality to this parable as it speaks of the kingdom of God. And I, I pray today, in New Valley, maybe during this sermon, uh, not only for yourself but for us, if, if you would be praying to the Spirit that we would have ears to hear what he says to us through this parable that we would be sensitive and pliable and, and able to be shaped by him and formed by him and surrender to his shaping influence so that we can hear. There are two main points to the sermon today that really highlight these realities. The first point is this. The kingdom, God's kingdom, has broken in through Jesus and is spreading. That's the first point. The second is the kingdom is coming in full through Jesus. The kingdom is coming in full through Jesus. So we'll address both of these as we we walk through Jesus's uh, conversation with his disciples after sharing with this crowd. So first, the kingdom is broken in through Jesus and is spreading. Our world, the world that you and I live in, is is sin-stained. It's dark. It's saturated with the corruption of our rebellion against God, against the Creator. This is not something that you have to, that I have to sit here and try to convince you of necessarily. Even if you're not a believer in Christ uh, sitting in here, you probably have a great sense within you that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And you probably have a sense that things need to change for the better. And this is, so, so Christian, this is something that you probably find you don't necessarily need to convince your unbelieving neighbor about necessarily. This is something they're probably very, very acutely aware of. Um, you won't find a person who's going to tell you the world is the way it's supposed to be when, when faced with things like the brutality of war, or the tragedy of suicide, or the blood-curdling cry of a mother who's lost her child. Who's going who's to look at that and say, yes, that is the way 
that humans were designed to be. That is the way this world is supposed to be. Virtually nobody's going to say that. Our world is broken and we know it. And Jesus in his parables, he, he uses the means of the natural order of God's creation, God's design. He uses the means of God's natural order of creation and human activity to show this deep affinity that exists between creation and redemption. This is what parables often do. They show, not by way of analogy, but by way of affinity, the connection between God's good creation and the redemption that is being brought through Christ. In other words, the same God who created our world and designed it is the one who is redeeming our broken world. Just because we broke his world through our rebellion, it does not mean that God no longer owns this world. That's a good thing for us to consider. I, when I was young, I think I was about eight years old, one of my friends came over and he had just gotten a Superman action figure, which at the time, to me as an eight-year-old, it was the coolest thing you could have. Like We, we were into DC a lot, the DC uh, guys, and Superman was the one to have, right? Superman and who else? Batman, there we go. All right, we got some people that know that world. And so he brought over Superman, and he had just gotten it, and he let me play with his Superman toy. And I thought it would be cool as an eight-year-old to see how high Superman could fly, right? And so I started chucking him up in the air. I don't know what I was thinking, right? Eight-year-old, I was, I was throwing him up in the air, and I thought, man, this is, this is cool. It's like Superman's flying. And lo and behold, that last time I threw him up in the air, I didn't quite catch him, and he came down to the ground and hit the ground, and his arm popped off, right? Kids, plug your ears a second. This gets a little, little violent, right? Superman's arm popped off. And I had this sinking feeling in my gut, like, oh no, I've just <laughs> broke my friend's toy. And I picked Superman and his poor little arm up off the ground, and I brought him shamefully back to my friend. I think I was even crying. And I said, I'm so sorry I broke your toy. And he was sad. He was like, what in the world? I just got this, you know? And we took it to his dad, and his dad popped the arm back on. I think it was kind of a G.I. Joe thing. And he kind of somehow got the rubber band and popped it back on, and Superman was saved, okay? My friend's dad saved Superman. <laughs> but here's the point. That toy did not cease to be my friend's toy just because I broke it. It was still his toy even though Superman's arm was, was popped off. And this world, it is still God's world. This is our Father's world as we, as we sing in the song. Just because we broke it doesn't make it less his. So as we think about this parable, let's think about this great reality. Our world belongs to God, even though our rebellion has brought corruption to this world. And, and in Jesus, this first point, the kingdom of God has come into this broken world. I want us to think about this, this breaking in of Christ, breaking in of God's kingdom through Christ for a moment. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, in his book, The Coming of the Kingdom, he says this, he says it in this way. He says, only those who know the mystery in the present of this breaking in of God's kingdom through Christ, only those who know the mystery in the present will share in the revelation of the future. For the seed, he's speaking of this parable here, the seed is the word of the kingdom of God. 
by which he comes into the world in Christ. The seed is the word of the kingdom of God by which he comes into the world in Christ. God's kingdom has broken into our world through Jesus. But the way he has broken in is very interesting. The way he's broken in was uh, contrary to what many of the Jews of the first century thought this coming Messiah would be like when he broke into the world. The way Christ came in, he broke in in a hidden way, in a mysterious way. Look what he says to his disciples. He says, to you has been given what? The secret of the kingdom of God. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And this secret, this mystery, George Ladd speaks of it uh, in his book of Theology of the New Testament. He says the mystery is that the kingdom that is to come finally in apocalyptic power in the future, right? As foreseen in Daniel, in might and in power, the king on his throne, that kingdom has in fact entered into the world in advance in a hidden form to work secretly within and among men. That kingdom has come in advance in Christ in a hidden form to work secretly within and among men. And concerning this mystery, Jesus then quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. There is an obscurity to the way the Messiah has broken into the world. An obscurity much like a small seed. You cannot tell what is happening simply by observing, necessarily. You see these things thrown on the ground, but you don't see the fruit of what they're going to produce. In that same way, the kingdom has broken into the world, causing some, as this parable is going to indicate, causing some to believe, but many to not believe, for many to remain in their unbelief. And this is what Jesus is driving us towards here as he explains to his disciples this parable. He's describing the posture of unbelief. This is what he says. It's like seeing but not perceiving. It's like hearing the words but not understanding the sentences. And you know as well as I, the condition of this, this is a condition of the heart. This isn't a a physical ailment. It's not as though the eyes of these men were somehow physically altered so they couldn't see what he was doing, or the ears, the, the, the waves weren't coming in right to the eardrum. No, 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 no. This is a condition of the heart, not a physical ailment. And so when we look at this, we, we're, we're holding here true belief and unbelief. True belief is reflected with open ears, eager to listen and to hear what God is saying. The word is disclosed and it releases grace. Right with, with true belief. With unbelief, unbelief is reflected in closed ears. Unwilling to listen and unable to hear what God is saying. The word is veiled and it releases judgment. And so the different soils that we're going to talk about, they show the posture of unbelief versus belief. And they bring us really into our second and Final point, only two points today. The kingdom, the kingdom is coming in full through Jesus. Now, 
We had just, our mind had just gone to about 2,000 years ago and the breaking in of Christ in the kingdom, which happened in uh, an obscure way, right? Mysterious way, using this word secret. But now I want to take our minds to the end as we think about this second point. The kingdom is coming in full through Jesus. And this unbelief and obscurity, it will not last forever. One day the work of the sower that's spoken of here that is, that is brought forth in Christ and the work of God through Christ and his spirit, one day the work of the sower will be clearly seen by all. This is the this is the picture that Paul paints in Philippians 2 when, he, when he's speaking of Christ and he says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day there, there will be no question as to who the Lord of creation is. Even those who have rejected him will see him as he is, as Lord, Kyrios, as, as master, as ruler, as creator. And this spreading of the word that Jesus is talking about in the sowing, it anticipates this harvest. It anticipates the end harvest that will be a reality one day. What Jesus says next to the disciples, I think, is one of the more sobering passages in the scriptures, and, and New Valley again, I, I pray we have ears to hear what Jesus says here to his disciples, and that his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that dwells in us, would again continue to shape us and form us to be a faithful people through his word. See, what Jesus says next, it doesn't just give us a framework for how the gospel makes us right, how it, the gospel justifies us, before God, but it also shows us how the gospel purifies us, how the gospel sanctifies us to live faithfully to his word. And so let's, let's go through his description of this parable and how he brings out the meaning of it for his disciples. He says in verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes, immediately is a word that Mark loves to use, he uses it all over the place. And here, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now the picture here, what's being described in many ways is a hardened heart. Now when I say that, I don't want you guys to think of, because many times in church we say a hardened heart, sometimes we think of like, an atheist, capital A atheist, who has their arms folded like this, like, come on, Christian, give me your best shot, right? We might think that in our, in our mind's eye when we think of a hardened heart. But instead of that picture, I want you to think about us regular, weekly attending church folk, okay? I, I want us as much as possible to be in the light of this so that, so that maybe some of the conviction of this can start to stir in us right now. We're not immune to our hearts growing hard through, through habits of wickedness and idolatry. Um, I was thinking about kind of this dynamic this week, and um, in a previous role that I served as a pastor in a church um, a couple years ago, I helped to train up and, um, and kind of commission our teachers to go teach classes in the church. And I had a, a moment at the beginning of each semester where I met with all the all the classes that were getting ready to start, and we would meet, 
and they would do breakfast, and they were all gathered together with the teachers, and I kind of had this, like, I don't know, this running speech that I would give them, right? And those that had done classes for three or four, they knew my speech. Like, they could have probably come up and done it for me. Um, But I would get up, and I would essentially say this. I would say, okay, what you are embarking on, this Bible study, uh, this could be one of the greatest things for your faith that you enter into. And it could be one of the worst. And usually when I said that last part, I would see some of the, uh, at least if it was their first time, some of the, the older women in the group, they would kind of get this little, like, <laughs> some consternation would grow on their face. They'd be like, what? What are you talking about, you know? This Bible study, this could be one of the best things for you. This, this could be one of the worst. And I would say this, this could be one of the best things for your faith. If you come and, and you're saturated in God's word, and you're, you're kind of just availing yourself to the way the Spirit would want to work in you through his word and change you and transform you, and you would, you would hear his word and you would act on it, right? Man, it's going it's to be a powerful thing for your faith, hands down. But hear my warning. This could be one of the worst things you do if you come to this class every single week and you sit and you saturate yourself in God's word and your life doesn't change. And you see no transformation occurring in your heart. I said, this could be for you the way that you grow in actually ignoring God's word. Because you're actually learning week in and week out how to hear the word but not act on it. You're learning how to hear the word, but not respond to it. I said, this could, be, this could be detrimental for you if this is the way you approach this. And so it was my way to say to them, be sensitive to the way that the Spirit's going to work in your heart and life through this Bible study. And I'd say the same thing to us today. This is, we talk about the path being worn down. And I think for many Christians, the path can be worn down through this kind of repetitive manner. Hearing, but not obeying. Hearing, but not obeying. Hearing, but not obeying. We're we're just learning how to be disobedient when we do that. And so hear this, church. I pray we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. He describes the path This type of repetition is what's, I think, described by the path. Many feet have traversed this ground. It's been stomped down so much that it cannot even receive the seed. The seed doesn't go into it. So where are you at today? Is this true of you in any degree? Do you notice an ability within you to come to to sit under strong gospel teaching and and remain unmoved, unstirred, unchanged? Does does the same sin continually find expression in your life? I would call us as a church, as God's people, to repentance. And I would plead with you to repent of this and, and to respond even to this parable in this way. Jesus goes on, he says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. Remember, this is describing a rock that's under the surface, covered by a thin layer of soil. So the the seed is able to go into the soil, but, but the roots can't go very far. 
They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And I think there's a a key question for us here to wrestle with and to grapple with, and it's this. Do we realize, as a congregation, as a church, do we realize that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it calls us to die? Do we realize that the gospel calls us to die? I can't preach this without even thinking There may be some people here, some of you here, that actually die for your faith. I don't don't know what five years, ten years, fifteen years from now is going to hold. Some of you in here may actually be killed for the sake of your faith in Jesus. Yet some of us here, we may accept the gospel, yes, with joy, but when we face opposition to the good news from family, friends, coworkers, we may notice that we grow silent. And we notice that in our silence, we, we fall away. Our emotions can be roused when we hear good preaching, when we listen to a stirring worship song, when we, maybe even when we have that quiet time that rattles our cages, but, but then we go to work. Then we meet with our friends, then we go to the coffee shop, and our world does not share that enthusiasm for the gospel, and we, and we fall back. In thinking about that this week, I, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of the lineage of who we are as a church, to remind ourselves that in the very beginning of the church, we see many that give their lives away for faith in Jesus. Many were burned at the stake, stoned to death, stabbed, choked, killed for the sake of Christ. And many, even still today, of course, they endure much suffering for the name of Christ. This is the family that we're a part of. Are you ready for your faith to cost you your reputation, your livelihood, your friendships, and even, yes, your life? There's a death that occurs for all those who follow Jesus. And then he said, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. I think this final warning is perhaps even the most insidious of all for us as as we grapple with this parable. It speaks to the ways in which we're tempted to align our lives to the rhythms of the broken world that we live in. The ways that this pulls at all of us. I want you to keep something in mind here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the first century and he's sharing with them them some audacious claims of who he is, of what he has come to do. Essentially, he is God. These are the declarations that he's making, which is, blasphemy to the Jews. He's sharing this in the context of first century Palestine. In a moment when Christianity, as as we know it today, was localized to a region between the small group of disciples. They were completely surrounded by and dominated by the Roman Empire. This was not a 2.2 billion people faith like it is today. We sit and we, we see the fruit 
of what began as a small seed, but try to get the disciples' ear here. They, they were listening to this man profess and claim who he was, share this parable about the kingdom of God breaking into the world in the midst of this Roman Empire that much of their lives, even more than they knew, were rhythmically following. And we too, we're not immune to this, we're not, we don't have distance from this, but very much we live in a culture, a country, a society that has deeply shaped and formed us as people. From an early age, we are taught implicitly. We're taught what to care about and what not to care about. The stuff to invest in, the stuff to, to kind of divest and divest ourselves in. I'm not sure how to say that word. We're taught that at a young age. We're taught the importance of maybe being wealthy and independent versus being poor and utterly dependent. We're taught the, the status and the, the authority that can come with possessions. We're, we're taught this in so many ways. Our lives many times are governed by these bottom lines and we, we interact regularly with these and we interact with others in our lives who we all operate kind of according to these rhythms. And they just reinforce their strength in our minds. I'll tell you guys, I'm going to tell you about the only fight that I ever got into. My one fight ended in a chokehold. And the guy had me, I didn't have him. But this is what happened. I was, I was a kid, I grew up in a small town, and there were some boys in the town that no matter what, if the sun was shining, they wanted to fight you, right? And some of you grew up in a context like this where somebody would come and push you around and, you want to fight? And... Usually I'd say, no, I, don't, I really don't want to fight. Like, that's not what I want to do. But on this particular occasion, one of my best friends, he got into a fight with this, with this group of kids. And the biggest among them was just wailing on my friend. And I entered into the fight, and I, I pulled this guy off my friend, and I shoved him down to the ground. I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to, like, keep wailing on him or anything. And we started getting into it. He came after me, and we got into this wrestling match on the ground. And it ended up, he had me in a chokehold. And in that moment, I knew there's nothing that I can really do here. He's, he's got me. He's won the fight. And I, I don't remember even how it happened, but I just sat there and I said, okay, fight's done, right? That was the only fight I ever got into and I didn't, I didn't win, sorry. I wish I could share a much better story with you. <laughs> That's all I got. But here's the point of that. When we align our lives to the rhythms of the broken world, it's always going to end in a chokehold. <laughs> it's always going to end in a chokehold. You can't serve two masters, Jesus says. You can't do this. And many of us, we nod in agreement, but then Monday comes and our operation changes. We put on the suit, we step into work, we fire up the computer, and the rhythms of our broken world start to govern us. And I want us to hear what the Spirit is saying to us here. Hear what the Spirit is saying to us here through this parable. As we end, we consider what Jesus points our attention to at the end of this parable. He says in verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Jesus essentially says there is a, there's a harvest coming. There's a day of reckoning that is coming. There's a day when the secret things that, that 
are like seeds being scattered. They will be seen in all their glory and grandeur. The fullness of God's kingdom, to reiterate our point, it will come one day, again in Christ. And so for a moment, as we, as we close out this message, I want us to look at the very heart of the good news that has broken in. Look at the very heart of this gospel. At the very center of it all is death and resurrection. At the very center of our faith is Christ's death on the cross. His death on the cross that inaugurated, that launched this kingdom. And Christ, three days later, is resurrection from the dead, which broke this new creation into our dead world. And so I want you to think about this question, maybe phrased in two ways. Key question for us to consider in response to this sermon. How am I trusting the gospel in my life? How am I trusting the gospel in my life? And how am I not trusting the gospel in my life? Same question, just two different sides of the coin. And let's allow the parable of the sower to both warn us and encourage us today. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we give thanks that you have broken in to your world that has received corruption due to our sin and rebellion. That Christ has come and that he has done this work for us that we were totally unable to do for ourselves. God, we thank you that you have called us into your family through Christ, that we can cry out to you as Abba, Father, because of Jesus. We thank you that your spirit has been deposited in our hearts through faith and that your spirit quickens us, changes us, renews our minds and hearts to live as faithful people in our world today. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful faithful to your word, faithful to your work in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.